always be watching is back my podcast listening friends. On the show this week, we're talking about four huge shows. You'll hear our thoughts on The Mandalorian, the 2020 reboot of Saved by the Bell. Oh God, how's that even a thing? Uh, new sketch comedy show, Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun. And we swing back to HBO's Perry Mason. All that and more coming at you on Always Be Watching. Folks, friends, my fellow countrymen, you're joining us here on the Always Be Watching podcast. Joining us in the Always Be Watching lair is Blake Howard. He's a returning guest. You may have heard him on the show last year talking about... Okay, I don't really remember what he was talking about, but I know he was on two back-to-back podcasts with us. Blake, how the heck are you doing? Dan, I am. I'm really good, mate. You've caught me at. Uh, you've caught me at a time in my life and in my creative life where I currently am not releasing a show, uh, or, or maybe I'm releasing less shows than normal. I've just finished uh, the All the President's Minutes podcast, um, which you know, it was only just published, you know, probably just before this episode over the weekend. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling kind of weird. It's, uh, it's weird. To, it's weird and lovely to be on this show talking about other different things that aren't all the president's men. Yeah. So if people don't know Blake, basically he's a uh, man about town, talks on quite a number of podcasts that he produces himself about usually like film related things. So like you've done a couple of minute based podcasts. So your crowning achievement is probably the one heat minute where you talked about the yes. movie Heat one minute at a time. Uh, but yes. since then, you've got on and you've started doing it. You rolled straight off that into All the President's Men. Yes, which was the All the President's Minutes podcast, yep. Yes, and you're about to go into a third one. And have you actually announced what this is? Because I've, men- I've heard it mentioned on the Twitters. Yeah, it's uh, so my third show, which I'm deep diving on, is called Zodiac Chronicle. And it is a... Uh, uh, a slightly different approach than we've done in the other shows. It is 24 episode series, mm. uh, two for each Zodiac sign, breaking the movie down <laughs> yeah. sort of scene, scene by scene. And uh, it's, it's going to be sort of this sprawling investigation into David Finch's 2007. What, what I consider is kind of an undeniable masterpiece of his entire era of, uh, of, of work um, is Zodiac. So I'm super excited about that. But in amongst that, Dan, we had one eight minute, we did last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, which is a special victory lap series. I produced the great increment vice, which was hosted by my friend, Travis Woods on inherent vice, Paul Thomas Anderson's flick. We did Josie and the podcats with our mutual friend, Maria Lewis, which is a six slash 12 episode series based on the uh, incredible 2001 musical satire, Josie and the pussycats. And I add the, the show Miami nice, which talks all about Miami vice continues <laughs> to sporadically pop up in, in our feed every now and then, including a couple of bonus episodes of one heat minute, but um, you know, one heat minute, that's about 120 odd hours of speaking over a hundred and now I think roughly 180 episodes of that show, 127 hours um, talking about Alan J. Pakula's masterpiece uh, from 1976, all the president's men. And yeah, now moving into Zodiac, it's, it's been a pretty, when I look back on 2020, <laughs> there's been a lot of content. There's been a lot of content. So I'm thinking about the time that I saw Zodiac at the cinema because Zodiac was just one of those films that came and went 
Like nobody really had any expectations for the movie. It seemed like David Fincher was in a bit of a, I'm going to say like a fallow period because correct me if I'm wrong and I'm pretty sure I'm right, but this is the film he made directly after Benjamin Button. Uh, let me get that exactly for you. So Fincher. So, 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 so my, I, 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 I want to, I want to make, I want to just make sure that I have my, uh, I want to just make sure that I have my timeline right here. So Fincher, you're, you're absolutely correct. It was a bit of a, um, it was a bit of a strange period, but it wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't Benjamin Button. It was like Fight Club happens. Yeah. Panic Room happens in 2002. Nothing happens in between. Zodiac comes out in 2007 and comes hot off the press straight after Zodiac is Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which is 2008. So it's his first film that he made. Yeah, it's after. But in some ways was being pre-produced and technology and investigated and all that sort of stuff um, around the same time. But when Zodiac came to him, it was just like the perfect, the perfect subject for the perfect filmmaker. Yeah. But when it came out, like it just didn't seem like anyone was talking about it. It was just in the cinema. And cause I'm me, I'm like, I've got to go and see like a David Fincher movie. That's, it's not going to happen that I'm not doing that, but I'd heard nobody talking about it. It was just like, it was a complete mystery to me. My now wife and I were sitting in a cinema. It was an empty cinema as I recall. Uh, we were in a, uh, a small cinema in Brisbane. Like, it was just kind of like there was no expectations on this movie at all. And the cinema we were in was like a little bit run down. It was kind of falling apart. And it was the absolute best way to watch the 1970s set masterpiece that is Zodiac. It was just, <laughs> it was such a perfect experience. Yeah, I had an inverse experience. It was a packed theater. Really? And a whole bunch of people feeling uncomfortable. And particularly if, Folks would remember seeing it, you know. Is this because you really were, most, were you dressed as the Zodiac killer at the time? Is that why everyone no, was so unnerved? No, no, it was really disturbing because it was just like, I mean, it depends. If you, I might have been dressed by like Arthur Lee Allen, um, like John Carroll Lynch's <laughs> character. You never know. But uh, yeah. I, I think, I think that what happened was the death sequences in Zodiac or the kill, you know, the kills, I guess, in a traditional serial killer movie or a movie where you're hunting a serial killer all really happened in about the first 26 minutes of this movie. And so what happens is you see these absolutely disturbing crimes and the Lake Barriessa death scene is probably one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in a cinema. Forget horror movies, forget, you know, any, any, anything you can imagine. For me, it's one of the most disturbing things I ever saw in a cinema. And so I remember everyone feeling this great, discomfort and so when people left because the film ultimately does not give you you know this exultant satisfying we caught him ending because the true true to the facts of the case no one was ever caught or convicted for these crimes mm. um i think a lot of people walked out of there like what well, I'm, I'm not happy with that I'm, I'm dissatisfied whereas for me i was completely right from the get-go completely taken with just the obsessive quality of it the mood, the tone, just how vivid the imagery was and how wonderful all those actors were and just the torture. I don't know, maybe that the tort and I, and I don't mean the torture of the the kills. I mean the internal torture and tor- turmoil of dissatisfaction of dedicating your life to something, but never really getting that victory lap that you are right and that someone can be convicted because I just think that maybe it was just right at that right formative time of my sort of cinematic life where I was like, this, this is exactly the kind of movie that I need to see. Yeah, look, I think Zodiac is an incredible film. And so I'm excited to listen to your podcast when it hits my earlobes. It'll probably be above my earlobes. It'll be somewhere in that earlobe type (laughs) area. I'm inspired now to do my own David Fincher podcast. It's going to be eight eight episodes about the movie Seven. In every episode (laughs) of the podcast, I'm not going to talk about the movie. I'm just going to talk about the experience of the various sins depicted within the film. 
And on the podcast itself, I'm going to be engaging in that sin. So every week, <laughs> it's going to be me doing one of the sins from seven. Eating. But then on the eighth episode, inspired by the audience reaction that I saw at the movie Contagion, we're just going to celebrate Gwyneth's head in a box. Because <laughs> I learned from the movie Contagion that if you show Gwyneth dying on screen, you get an audience who are fully into that movie at that point. And so I feel that's the way to podcast success. Well, look... You're the man of many podcasts like I am. So I think if anyone can do it, you can do it. I don't need another project right now. So I'm I'm well, well and truly good on that. Okay. Well, look, here's the thing. I've got two podcasts. You've got about 35. I would have thought you'd be pretty good for my gluttony episode, but you know, here we go. But anyway, Blake, we could talk about podcasting all day and we, we pretty could. much have by this point. But I thought you and I, there was a moment pretty much about a year ago, give or take a couple of weeks, I sat mm-hmm. in your little recording studio. We did a podcast together. It was your podcast. You were doing one called The Take, which was a weekly look at movies. And for it was called The Take, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, okay. Try, thought, finding, try finding it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, my magic brought to that episode is just lost to the ages by the sound of it. Uh, but The Take, we sat there because for all, I guess it was eight weeks, you talked about The Mandalorian every week. And so That's I thought, right, yeah. Yeah, I came in on like I week spe- two. Yeah, you were there, Dan, very early on. We did a special, we did that special limited run. Um, the sort of the lion's share of the breakdown that we would do, I would do with the great American film critic, Lindsay Romaine, who writes for The Nerdist, um, because she's one of the most sort of, I, I guess, formidable Star Wars minds that I've ever encountered and read. And we had a great time talking about Star Wars. And then I got in some great guests such as yourself um, and others, Stu Coop, Brendan Hodges and the like. And we just sort of would break down the ancillary stuff, how the series developed. And I think you had a great deal of expertise around a Star Wars underworld series that was shot, but never kind of released or, or like thousands of scripts were kind of uh, developed over many years and how things would happen. And we talked about those intersecting things of like what can happen when the, these filmmakers being Favreau and Filoni and the producers of the show can get into the Lucas, the true George Lucas archives and, uh, and sort of mine some of these great stories and concepts. Well, this is it. So I, I wasn't going to talk about Underworld this week, but let's regurgitate that podcast because it's been lost <laughs> in the ages. Basically, for those that don't know, Star Wars Underworld was this proposed series that George Lucas is going to do. He had hired a whole bunch of... when. Okay, so this is like um, early to mid two. Actually, no, it's sort of late two thousands. I think. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. if you think about like the who's who of like really nerdy, high, well known, sorry, um, high brand, well known sci fi creators and other like nerd personalities of the time. Basically, all of them were involved. So this is you know like your Kevin Smiths, your uh, Ronald D. Moore from Battlestar Galactica. You know, like those kind of names. And basically, yes. he had farmed out a whole bunch of um, the script writing duties of the show to all these writers to come together with stories taking place across the underworld within the Star Wars universe. The plan was it was going to go for 100-odd episodes. The series, I think that would written like about 40 or 50 scripts before they decided to pull the pin on it. Basically, what happened was George Lucas sold Lucasfilm to Disney. And when that happened, basically, they just folded everything down and it never really sort of went forward. I believe that Disney took a look at all these scripts that George Lucas had done, uh, that he'd commissioned, and said, hey, look, there's some really interesting material here, but there's no way we could probably make the series for the budget that is required for a TV program. Like, that's just ridiculous. And so the show will never come to be. All those scripts, they've been mined. And if you go through what was in some of the scripts and look at some of the movies that have been made since, there's a whole bunch of scenes and characters that have been lifted from the Underworld TV show. 
uh, I think parts of the Mandalorian itself really stem from this underworld show, never to be. Yes. It's interesting that you mentioned that and remind me of it this week, particularly because the other thing he was working on was an animated sitcom called Star Wars Detours. Now, this show, unlike Underworld, actually went into production. And I it believe did. that, yeah, there were like about 13 episodes that were created of this animated show. It was from the team that did Robot Chicken. And frankly, I don't really care for Robot Chicken. Um, it was kind of okay at the first, at the beginning. Like, I like the novelty of it. But yeah, I just never really Ro- quite- Robot Chicken is like a slogan t-shirt. You know, it's like, it gives you a laugh, but you just don't want to keep wearing it over and over again. Like, it's just, it feels like the joke just, yeah, we get it. Get it. Yeah. yeah. It's fine. Yeah. It's very amusing. You know, good on you. Uh, but yeah, so they, <laughs> they made the show Star Wars Detours. In the last couple of days, one of the sketches from Detours actually got leaked. It's the first time anyone seen Weird it. Al Yankovic. By Weird Al Yankovic. He pointed to it on a Reddit thread. And did you watch it? No, I haven't watched it yet. I actually saved it because I was like doing other things. I'm like, oh my God, Weird Al, you like got this, <laughs> put this thing. But yeah, it's great. Uh, I mean, you used the word great. Having actually watched it, it is not great. Oh, okay. It was, well, there you go. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to watch. But anyway, <laughs> we're not talking about that. We're here to talk about The Mandalorian because I thought yeah. you and I, we talked about The Mandalorian a year ago. I wanted to revisit talking about The Mandalorian and... The difference between talking about it now to when we were talking about it back in the heyday of episode two of season one was we didn't know what they were doing with the show. Like, we didn't really understand what the structure of the show entirely was. We got there was mm. like a baby Yoda, but that was a mystery. It's like, what the hell? There's like a baby Yoda. Big question marks around everything. We didn't know if it'd have a personality. Like, you know, we, we knew nothing about the Yodes. We knew nothing about where Mandalorian was going. We didn't know that there'd be a whole sort of raft of regular sidekicks that had come into the show. Like... There was just question marks. We didn't understand the form and function of any of it, but we know a lot now. And this week of all weeks is probably the biggest episode of The Mandalorian ever. And what better week for us to talk about it? Yeah, I um, I I got really tired of talking Star Wars after The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> I had such a joyous time talking to Lindsay and yourself and Brendan Hodges and uh, any of our other guests, Stu Coot, those guys. And I watched The Rise of Skywalker and I watched in real time people try and process the death of one of their favorite things. Um, uh, and and it's just like, you know, watching the people who you thought were going to save the thing that you love or like to, to lift it up to the, you know, to put it on a pedestal that it deserves to be put on just to strangle it to death in front of your eyes. And I got quite despondent with the entire fandom. It was like, basically, I felt... I felt kind of lied to and I was just like, no, this is just a commercial exercise and I'm an adult and I'm done. However, I have been a huge fan of Star Wars my entire life. I've been a particular fan for folks who are listening to the Star Wars Rebels series. Um, I, I did like the Clone Wars, but I think the Rebels series, which was actually David Filoni, who, um, who, you, who directed and wrote this week's episode of The Mandalorian that we're talking about, um, Rebels series is an incredible series and I just strongly, strongly advocate for it. Um, for anyone who's never seen it, it's outstanding. And this week I watched Star Wars on Friday night in Australia as it came out. I watched The Mandalorian as, as it came out. It was funny. My son was being difficult that night and he wouldn't go to bed. And so I thought I'll just bring him downstairs with me while I'm watching this on TV and I'll give him a little cuddle and we'll watch this thing together. And he stayed awake the whole time. And we watched this episode, maybe the greatest like single shot dose of Star Wars that I can ever really remember watching like this, like whatever it is, 30 minute dose of Star Wars. And um, 
my little boy who's two and a bit was like watching this thing going, where's baby? Where's baby? <laughs> like every time the baby Yoda wasn't on screen. So it was kind of this super special moment. And the greatest realization I think of any like, you know, animated character into live action, which is Ahsoka Tano played by Rosaria Dawson. I mean, just every single thing about this episode, Dan, I was completely overwhelmed by the Kurosawa, uh, the Kurosawa comparisons, the Filoni's command of George Lucas's real law, um, you know, Michael Bean. I mean, holy shit. This episode just basically had everything I could conceivably want about Star Wars. It had it and showed the very best of what this show could be in my mind, which is, you know, if, you, if you're going to, if you're going to be this kind of underworld rebels amalgam, then all I can say is that is exactly the kind of show that I will watch and continue to watch in this universe. Um, because it kind of had this restorative quality of like, shit, this is actually the thing that I grew up loving. And uh, I, yeah, couldn't be more overwhelmed by how great it was. Okay. I want to talk about why I think this episode is actually an incredible, like groundbreaking episode of television just broadly. Uh, but let's listen to a clip from the show and we'll come back in just a moment. Is he speaking? Do you understand him? In a way, Grogu and I can feel each other's thoughts. Grogu? Yes. That's his name. Okay, so that's us finding out the real name of Baby Yoda. I mean, it was a big moment for all. Huge. <laughs> Here's the thing. First of all, I really like that scene. And what I thought was kind of great about that scene and the way that it was shot is that it's the sort of scene that you don't usually see in a TV program. So usually in a lot of movies, you'll find that quiet moment where they're taken away from, like if it's like an action type of film, the characters are taken away from the action. And so they just have like a quiet moment Sometimes in a train carriage, uh, I'm thinking particularly about the Cindy Crawford, Billy Baldwin film, Fair Game, for example. Uh, but <laughs> What a pull. <laughs> Nothing what but the deepest of dives on this No one show. has mentioned Fair Game in two decades and you've done it. Yeah, you know, this, this is what people expect from this podcast. Give the people what they want. <laughs> but no, like every action film always has like that quiet moment. You know, the T2 goes off to the side with John Connor and so they'll have like a bit of a heartwarming moment you'll find out something about like the depth of the characters and it'll just be a way to create a sort of a, t a table setting establishes where characters are coming from, where they're going to be going. And you, it's you like just can't keep killing people, Dan. <laughs> Why? Exactly so it's like a quiet moment. And then suddenly the action will amp up again. You go for your final act. And it was kind of one of those types of scenes. Um, another good example is uh, if you remember back in 1989, 1990, a little film called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It was a scene mm. shot very similar to this where it's kind of just sort of around a campfire and, uh, you know, having a moment. So, you know, Deep Dives, Ninja Turtles, Fair Game with Cindy Crawford. Both very important films to my early 90s growing up for all <laughs> sorts of reasons. Anyhow, uh, I really like that scene for that because it was something where TV shows don't take quiet moments like that in a way that this episode did. And I thought that was mm. really cool. But this episode specifically does something really quite incredible. And you said it earlier, which is that basically it took an animated character and included it into this live action universe. Now, I'm sure that there have been other ex like examples in the world where a character had ex existed within a cartoon and suddenly became part of like the live action sort of version and, of it. And even in this show, 
Bo-Katan is a character from yeah, Rebels. Like, yeah, so like, um, was it two episodes ago? So, we, yeah, yeah, with uh, uh, you know, we, we've we've seen it already happen. We've yeah. seen you know these characters bleed through, but so it's um, it, it's, it's not that that it, hasn't happened before. But what's kind of incredible about this is the role that this character specifically plays within the broader scheme of Star Wars. And how the fact that she plays such an important role within the extended universe of Star Wars being brought into the mainstreaming of Star Wars is really quite a unique beast. So it's one thing to spring a fairly obscure character who's just a character and bring it over. A side character. Yeah. But yeah. like she is pivotal to Star Wars. So, but she's pivotal to Star Wars in a way that if you are your average mainstream Joe who goes along and sees the live action shows and you've maybe watched the. Ewok movies from the 80s and you know you've seen one or two <laughs> things you probably don't know the character because she is from you know two of the animated shows and for as long as I remember growing up there was always two two Star Wars experiences you could grow up as I did initially which is that you just become like your mainstream Star Wars viewer you watch the now nine movies you've watched the Mandalorian show you've seen those Ewoks but then you've got the other fans who started reading the novels, they read the comic books, they've watched a lot of the animated series spin-offs. So in the 80s, you had an Ewoks cartoon and droids. They were fairly unimportant, they were just like Saturday morning cartoon fare. But then through the like early 2000s onwards, they had these animated shows that were actually deeply embedded within the Star Wars mythology. And they were just as important to hardcore Star Wars fans as the books were. And if you think about the books, and this is what segues into this episode in a moment as well, You've got these books that came out in like 1991 and there was like this big deal where they brought out these three books that were supposed to really sort of further the adventures of the Star Wars characters we'd known and take them into novel form. So this was a series that started with Heirs of the Empire and then there were two others which I didn't read because I got a bit bored by Heirs of the Empire. But what was interesting about them is they had a new villain written that got by, brought written, written, written by Timothy Zahn yep. and had a great villain. Yeah, so they had this villain in it named Admiral Thorne. So he came into it there. And those books, they were kind of, they were sold a bunch, but I don't think people really remember much outside of uh, Thorn. But I believe he comes into the animated shows later on. Is that right? He does. He, he appears in the, the latest e series of Rebels, and that's where he encounters Ahsoka Tano, yeah. um, which, which you say. And one thing I just want to tack on is, and for folks, because Dan hasn't sort of explicitly said it yet, Ahsoka Tano is the oh, Padawan sorry, I, of Adam. I, I, I was, I was getting there. It was getting there, but it, she's the Padawan of Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. So she, she, and okay, well, most now, recent... before we get to that, I think that we've missed the point. Okay. So. Oh, go, go. You've got Heir to the Empire. They did some other multimedia stuff in the mid nineties. There was like Shadows of the Empire, which is like this year long video games got tied as the Star Wars universe. There were novels, there were comics and no one really cared. Like it was just the thing that the nerds did. But like well, the, well, the, cool the, people. the Star Wars nerds cared. And, and then when Lucasfilm got bought by Disney, what happened, Dan? Okay, well, even before then, so they, when the original prequels were coming out, I think it was after the second one, they released the Clone Wars animated film, which then led yes. into the TV series. And so suddenly this character gets brought into her. Her name's, how do you pronounce her name? I've never said it Ahsoka, out loud. Ahsoka Tano. Ahsoka Tano. See, I've, I've tried saying it to myself, but actually saying it out <laughs> loud, I was very intimidated right then. But you get this character who's introduced, and she's not just an ordinary Star Wars character. She's the Padawan, the apprentice to Anakin Skywalker, the guy who eventually breaks bad and becomes the villain for Star Wars. Like, this is a major character. And yes, their relationship's difficult to watch because she keeps calling him Snips for some reason. I've never really understood that. It was a bit of a struggle. But <laughs> I'm someone who stuck mostly to the live action. I'm aware of these things that are happening on the side. I've seen maybe the first 10 episodes of Clone Wars, 
but I haven't seen past then. But I do know that people love that character and seeing her actually bleed into the regular Star Wars universe is a big deal because she's not just any character. She is the number two person to Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, she's... The most recent Clone Wars series, which people can see, season seven, is really about that. It is literally the bridge and it's it's the missing timeline and why Dave Filoni wanted to go back and sort of complete the series with the final season being season seven of the Clone Wars because the Clone Wars had gone up to a point that had bridged the time that we'd seen from Attack of the Clones really you know, to, to close-ish proximity to Revenge of the Sith, but it had never quite gotten into that blurry lines of like that time overlap and seeing what happened to these characters like Ahsoka Tano, because later on you see that she still lives after the, you know, the Order 66 and the Purge of the Jedi from the Empire. You see that she lives in Rebels because Rebels is set sort of um, in, in, in the, um, in in the lead up to you know it, it, rebels and say rogue one are happening in sort of similar timelines but you see that ahsoka lives beyond the the empire and she lives beyond that time and so it was always this great question mark that's hanging over like what happened to this hugely influential character and so seeing her being realized it's it's inc- it's kind of incredible for the fans who've stuck along with it but also you know the Clone Wars is still canon. In Disney World, a lot of this extended universe, what happened was with these characters, they said, no, the Clone Wars is canon. This extended universe is just kind of like, you know, uh, sort of like a bit of like a choose your own adventure Star Wars. It's no longer part of the canon because they wanted to, you know, the extended and expanded universe had written all the sequels to the star, the original Star Wars trilogy and had written about all these characters and written about their fate. And Disney wouldn't, didn't want to be wedded to any of that. So they said, no, we're not going to go with it. Um, so the fact they didn't now, go, the thing that didn't, the actual fact they didn't go with it really sort of led credence to the way that I approached Star Wars, which was I can watch the live action stuff and as far as I'm concerned, the live action stuff is canon. Like is this stu- anything is else this that stuff? gets created in addition to that becomes effectively just uh, canon fodder in the way that uh, I think Disney started calling them legends, I think is the word. Yes, yeah, Star so, Wars legends. Yeah. yeah. So basically that's Star Wars stories, but that's kind of fictional Star Wars stories. But the real Star Wars stories are over here. But having, I tried saying it, I lost it entirely. <laughs> <laughs> Ahsoka. Ahsoka. Bringing Ahsoka in is basically uh, like them laying the line in the sand saying, if you want to keep up with Star Wars from this point in, you need to be paying attention to these cartoons. They are no longer just peripheral things on the side. This is actually going to be fundamentally important going on. And keeping that in yeah. mind, I thought it's fascinating seeing that with Mandalorian existing, which is the flagship show for Disney+, Plus. You've got that there, but then on this platform as well, that provides just as ready access to all these animated shows as well. So in a lot of ways, The Mandalorian is like the perfect program to really launch an entire world of Star Wars on a digital streaming platform because it actually is being very inclusive of all this other Star Wars material that to people like me is largely unseen. So it's actually kind of exciting. And seeing this happen this week is maybe a sign to me saying, look, pull your finger out, go and watch some of the Star Wars stuff because there's some good <laughs> there's good Star Wars in there and I know I've just been ignoring it because it isn't part of the quote-unquote important canon. Yeah, I think I think what they're saying now is like everything's on the table. Like, mm. And I think what this show is doing is saying Star Wars, like the Star Wars expanded universe, which so many of the feverish fans have like been yearning to see in sort of these, these huge movies is now everything's on the table for future movies and future TV. But I think also what they've said is, you know, Star Wars 
ultimately was inspired by in Lucas's mind were these serialized space shows, you know, that he used to love when he was a kid, even the iconography of the original crawl and everything like that is, is that sort of thing. So it does have this weird implicit connection to this serialized TV narrative. And I think that this show and the other shows that are going to spin off from it are basically saying, we, we don't need another, we don't need another movie. <laughs> like we don't need a single one because this is the most pop. The Mandalorian is the most popular and viewed show in the world. And it, it, and it is almost not even a contest based on the number of streams that happened in, in last year. And so keeping up that feverish pace that it is doing and keeping this, this water cooler talk and occupying the conversation for, you know, months at a time. Um, it's, it's just saying, we're going to keep running this show. Our spinoffs are going to keep running. Our show's going to keep running. And people, this one-stop shop of like this entire expanded universe, that's how we're going to keep going. And then eventually there might be movies and so, and so on and so forth. But, but for me, it was, this did, it, it's the multi-layered effect of this show and this episode of this show that is so powerful because it starts to go, holy shit, for people who've never seen it, I need to go watch The Clone Wars. I need to go find out about this chick Ahsoka Tano. She's, she's Anakin's Padawan. Oh my God, I'm going to figure out who this person is. Um, and then it's also like the big inferences in the episode, and we can talk, I guess, a bit spoilery, is like Grogu, Baby Yoda. Ahsoka is not going to train him. She doesn't take him off the Mandalorian's hands. She charges the Mandalorian with an expanded task, which is to take him to this sacred you know, sacred uh, Jedi uh, artifact or monument to call out to the force and see if anyone's out there. And then knowing that they've just had this moment where they're talking about Thrawn, who's a great villain, a huge villain in the, in the rebels universe and seeing how he's going to play, play a role here. Um, And Ahsoka Tano, it's like, there's other huge characters that are now on the chessboard of this show that are making fans like me go, Oh shit. Ezra Bridger from Rebels. He's a Jedi. He's out there. Oh my God. Are we going to have live action Ezra? And so you start to get this, like all these like tingling feelings of what, what is possible. But at the same time, there is nothing more satisfying than Mandalorian getting stopped. Someone asking him for help. He helps them, but then they also kind of try and kill him or put him into trouble. That's going to threaten his life and the life of Grogu slash baby Yoda. And then moving on to the next mission in the next week. It's just so satisfying. The format is deeply satisfying. It's just, it's, you know, it's a really masterful show. And I think Dave Filoni, the guy who directed this episode in this episode more than anything, and he was doing it in the previous season, but it's like going, Hey, guess what? I'm, you know, there's like, you referenced fair game. So I'm going to reference Jet Li's The One. <laughs> yeah. There's a moment in the end, like of Jet Li's The One, where, you know, Jet Li is talking to other characters on this prison where he says, I am nobody's bitch. You are my bitch. And I feel like Dave Filoni was well, like, One of the great I, lines of cinema. I, one of the great lines. I think Dave Filoni is like, I am, I'm, I'm George Lucas now. How you like that? <laughs> I, see me? I'm George Lucas's Padawan. This is me showing you Ahsoka. I'm, this is me. And so this dialogue becomes, this is the guy that they're handing the torch over to. John Favreau has been the, the, just like he did with the Marvel universe. He has been curating this incredible show, pulling in all this talent. He is a guy, you know, like a chef who just brings in these ingredients and makes an alchemy of great things. And that's him in the second phase of his career. That's what he's doing. And holy shit, if we didn't just see the George Lucas of this whole universe, just whip it out on the table for everyone and say, I'm here, I'm arrived. Check out my double white sabers. Here we go. Okay, that's a horrific thought. 
what, what I've found really fascinating with the season is that this has been a season where almost every episode really has drawn elements from this extended Star Wars universe. Going from near the very beginning where you saw the introduce, introduction of the character Cobb Vanth from Vanth Refrigeration. There's a bit of an office joke. Um, but Cobb Vanth, who is played by the excellent uh, Timothy... Oh gosh, I've forgotten his surname. From Deadwood and Tom, Timothy Oliphant. Uh, but he's playing a character from the Star Wars novel Aftermath, which was a yes. book that was released at the same time as Force Awakens. Uh, it was by Chuck Wendig as the writer of it. And they said, hey, look, this is what's kicking off the proper canon books going forward. But since that book came out, I've heard nobody mention that at all. But then suddenly this obscure character who was mentioned, I think sort of only in like a chapter or two of it, suddenly becomes a major character in the Mandalorian show. So that's kind of interesting. Then we've seen other characters from the animated show crop up this season. And I'm wondering where does this end? So the implication from this episode is that we're now going to see like Admiral uh, Thorn become part of it all. Uh, But I want to see maybe a return back to maybe my favorite Yoda type character, not Yoda, not Grogu, but a little character called Yaddle who had, I believe, no lines at all. (laughs) Some serious Yaddle erasure has has been charged in the internet um, this week. Yeah, look, I just genuinely think it's it's all sorry, open. Sorry, and we I should say that, for the people who don't know, Yaddle was a character that was seen in The Phantom Menace. And she's a- On the th- Jedi Council. On the Jedi uh, Council. Another, Yo- another Yoda-style character. Yes, and never to be seen of again. Um, no, never. And it, it, this is what I would say is, the cool thing about this show is they're just saying that this is how we do Star Wars now. Like it's the, the, the concern that that thought of fans before going, Oh, Star Wars TV is not me. I'm all about the movies. I think that they're just saying, this is how we do Star Wars now. Like th- we're going to do series. We're going to explore things. We're going to take our time and we're, and we're going to give it, we're going to, we're going to cast incredible actors. It's going to look absolutely phenomenal. We're going to get your favorite people across all of your favorite TV shows and films. And they're going to guest star on this show because they just want to be a part of this universe together. We're going to be inclusive to fandoms. Um, it's kind of doing all the right, it's like kind of doing all the right things, but I think the, the nuts and bolts of it is, can you do all the right things and still tell a really compelling story um, and tell a really exciting visual story and the whole kind of real, the essence of Star Wars, these like moral parables that you do. And 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 I think that like this, this episode is the synthesis of everything you could possibly want out of, in my mind, it's everything you could possibly want out of Star Wars. You want the world building, you want, you want a Jedi portrayed with, with like this meditative magical quality you want you want like bad guys who have forts and 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 torture people you want like gunfights in the streets between bounty hunters you want you know really intimate fights uh between you know formidable foes and and uh, that'd be high stakes um and you also want that world building that's mythical. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think, yeah, everything's on the table, Dan. Now, like all these things, you know, I, and I definitely think if, if I was recommending to any of the fans of this show, go and watch Rebels. It's three seasons. Um, it's really incredible. It really kind of caps off and ties up storylines that happen in the Clone Wars series and sort of finishes a lot of things. There are huge characters that get the reverse treatment, cinematic characters that we see in anime together and it's just there's some huge stuff that is in that show that i think is really important for uh, for folks to see okay so i want to leave this uh, discussion about the mandalorian with one big question uh but before we do that let's just acknowledge the fact that if you've got characters bleeding from 
real, uh, like, you know, live action movies into animated and animated into live action. And all these actual, like, actual live action programs are also computer animated anyway. Really, what's the difference? But <laughs> the actual question I want to ask you is this. Rosario Dawson. So she's mm. brought in uh, playing, like, this pivotal character in Star Wars. Maybe I'd say the most important character potentially for Star Wars going forward into the future do you think it is a um, pure accident that they've decided to go with Rosario Dawson? And the fan expectation is that people have been told about Rosario playing this character in live action for a while now. There's lots of fan art about this, and she was always like the name kind of mooted. But the fact that they actually went ahead and hired her, because she's not just someone who can appear in a fan-friendly TV show in the way that certain Battlestar Galactica actresses may have two episodes ago. <laughs> but, like, she's a bonafide movie star. Like, she has yeah. been in both sort of genre stuff, like, in Spike Lee movies. Like, she is a genuine actress who can carry a movie on her own, like, back. Do you think it's a complete coincidence that we're seeing her play this character? Do you think that she'll be in it for just one or two episodes? Or do you see a world where she becomes just as important to Star Wars as your Mark Hamill's of the world, where suddenly, like, she's appearing in TV shows going forward, movies, and actually being the focal point of Star Wars going forward? Yeah, I I think she could definitely hold her own show. There's no doubt. I think, I think that right now it's probably a big test because, you know, one of the things I recently spoke to my former host, Lindsay Romain, on that show, The Take Mandalorian, about is... There's lots of talks of spin-offs right now in the series. There's the Cassian Andor series, so one of the Rogue One characters. There's the Obi-Wan series. And I think that um, I think it's just indicative of the power of like streaming giants and like streaming TV shows to cast huge actors that can hold whole movies on their own. That they can entice a Rosario Dawson for a cameo that still has a question mark on it. Like they probably have a whole series idea for her, a whole movie idea. But I my, my answer is I don't know, but I think anything is possible with her. Like, I just think like if they wanted to make a movie, fans would see it. Like we want the Ahsoka Tano story, but I think if they're laying that up for, you know, a potential new movie series, um, which is Ahsoka Tano and Thrawn and like this pre, um, you know, this pre uh, sort of new trilogy, JJ Abrams trilogy sort of timeline, you know, post empire new trilogy and bring in some other characters. I think they would, but I think that, I think the Mandalorian has shown that movies are not their priority. They would rather captivate audiences around the world together collectively on a streaming platform and make movie quality stuff like episodic movie quality stuff. And then, and, and so in my mind, it's much more likely that we're going to see an Ahsoka Tano story in a series um, as, and, and, and I think Clone Wars was kind of her series and especially season seven. So I think that it's more likely to me that she's going to be, you know, a huge, you know, Alec Guinness level supporting character, but probably in a spin-off series, you know, because you can, you can always call back to this huge prestige actor that's playing a beloved character over a, a longer period of time. If she's just popping in and out and then doing different threads and story arcs and things like that. See, I'm expecting so much more. Like I would be very simple. <laughs> like, I, okay. So I think that what you said then sounds fine. If you're not thinking about the money side of things. Yeah. But when you start thinking about the money, <laughs> like suddenly it's like, well, you've got Rosario Dawson. She can lead a Star Wars movie. She would be there as a beloved character who's suddenly coming off the Mandalorian is so hot. And like in this episode, like she's incredible. Like she was so compelling watching oh. on this program. Like 
I'm not even like that familiar with the character, but I was watching She's, her. And you she can just see in my office behind me that there's a Josie and the Pussycats vinyl, and her face is probably in your fr- in your frame <laughs> right there, Rosario. She can do it. She literally can do it all. She's a movie star. She yeah. can play satire. She is funny. You know, geeks would love her from things like Clerks too. But she is like a real phenomenal actor, and she can do anything. And I, but I also think. Right now, I mean, we saw Tenet make $3 at the box office this year, Dan. You know, it's 2020. I think no one gives a rat. They think in about subscribers. You know, I think that I think I think if they gave her a whole series that was an Ahsoka series and st- on, on Disney Plus, she'd be making a mozza. They're probably, you know, it's probably spending 12, you know, Game of Thrones money, like $12 million or $10 million an episode to make it anyway. So I, I, I think she'd be very comfortable with that Star Wars money. I think Disney want to make their next sort of one to $2 billion on the next Star Wars movie. And I think she's <laughs> going to be key to that. But anyway, let's move on because we've got three other shows to talk to. So we're going to do these sort of fairly quick-ish um, going mm. forward. But you're going to talk about a show which, look, it's probably not setting the world on fire, but it's definitely been very popular here in Australia. It's the new sketch comedy show starring Auntie Donna. All the best. We're looking for the top answer to the question, things you put in your mouth. Oh. Yeah, so it's a nice and easy one. Let's play. What's your first answer? Great. A walk in the park. It's so easy. What's your answer? That's a walk in the park. Things you put in your mouth. So what's your answer? Yeah, let's lock that in, Grant. Walk it in. A walk in the park. Walk in the park. A walk in the park. Let's lock that in, brother. You put that in your mouth. Yeah. Here you take the concept. Walking through a park. Put that in your mouth. Lock that in. Gobble, 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 Grant. Yum, yum, yum. Okay. Auntie, Donna, Auntie Donna's uh, big old house of fun. I think that's the name of the show. <laughs> it is. They, they're they a team that, they're a Melbourne sketch comedy team that joined together in 2011. Um, they met you know, at university, it's three guys, uh, Mark Bonanno, Broden Kelly and Zachary Rowana. And, uh, look, they've, they've just, just like everything, um, They've been a staple of Australian con- uh, comedy for many years. They've made different web series. They've done different, you know, Melbourne international comedy show, sketch shows and things like that, Edinburgh Fringe, et cetera. But it just takes, just like everything in Australia, it takes an international company to give them money and to see their potential to give them a Netflix series. And their series, which dropped, it's only six episodes long, um, on Netflix is called Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun. These guys are an absurdist, absurdist sketch comedy group. And I genuinely think I have not seen anything that is remotely as funny this year. Um, and it's definitely one of the funniest Australian shows that I've seen. If I wasn't so obsessed with Bluey, um, having two kids and watching Bluey religiously on a nightly basis in our house, I would say that it's my favorite Australian show of the year by far. Um, Bluey, unfortunately, still eclipses them. But holy shit, it is so funny. I just, it's its absolutely nonsense the, the sketches are ludicrous. Uh, where they go is absolutely unpredictable. And I howled, howled, howled. I reckon I'm now on my third round of watching all six episodes again. It is incredible. So if you get onto Twitter, you'll find, sorry, Australian Twitter. If you get onto Australian Twitter, you'll find <laughs> that uh, people are falling into one of two camps. So the majority of people are like, have you seen Auntie Donna? You know, it's great. It's lot, you know, it's fantastic. You know, pretty much the same reaction that you just gave it then. But then there's like a small sort of undercurrent of people who are like, I don't get it. Like it is just not doing anything for me. It's not funny. It's just, it's, it's not good. You people Dad, are What have I told you and the A always be watching folk before? Don't follow my wife on social media. If you want to know about shows like this, <laughs> because that's what was my experience. I was watching this in my house 
laughing, howling. And my wife and her sister were actually hanging out while I was watching it. Uh, and they were looking at me like, what is wrong with you? Like this, this show is complete lunacy. And I was like, that is exactly the medicine I need right now. I don't, I don't, I, you know, in a year filled with incredible opportunities for satire, it's tiresome. I want ridiculous, funny things. And that is exactly what this show is. Pure, un, unabated, crazy, ridiculous things. It is fascinating to me that you use the word tiresome in there because that's exactly the word that I want to use to describe this program. My <laughs> God, did this leave me cold. So the thing I had with the show is that it feels so confident and I really like the confidence of it. I like the performances yeah. that are in there. And to use the line from The Great Purd Happily from Parks and Recreation, I'm laughing because that has the cadence of a joke. And I suddenly <laughs> felt that there was the cadence of a joke everywhere, but I just was not feeling any of the jokes. Like every single gag left me completely cold. And it's oh, exactly the sort of show that I would usually get on board for. I don't mind surrealist comedy. A, a lot of this reminds me of like the Detroiters uh, series. Like yes. it's a very similar style of comedy it's a very similar approach to comedy it's a very similar tone and flavor of comedy of that but whereas that show has me holding my stomach just like on the ground just weeping this program i could not have wiped that frown off my face it was <laughs> it was difficult oh well it's, it sucks because like literally like i said the space between you know myself my wife and her sister like we were sitting in such close proximity and now we're having a completely different experience. And I think that, you know, with, with any kind of sketch comedy, especially absurdist stuff or surrealist stuff, like I honestly think that's it. Like I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying to anyone that I, I just get disappointed that you're having that experience. I'm not saying that, you know, your taste is different or whatever, but I just find it completely hilarious. So great. And maybe it's because I'd, I'd been so involved in serious uh, conversations throughout the year around surrounding politics um, and things like that, that like humor this year, I just wanted, I wanted to be made to laugh by things that were completely silly. And I didn't realize how much I needed that until I saw this show this year for me. Cause it just so ridiculous. So many sketches, like there's one, my favorite sketch of the entire series happens in the second episode where um, Zach is sitting on the lounge with Mark and they start watching Ellen and um, Ellen at that moment is played by the Broden and it goes into this stupid tangent about Ellen, you know, giving away a car, taking away his debt, then smuggling blood diamonds over a border. Like it is just the most ludicrous series of events uh, using the tropes of a TV giveaway. Um, and it has such little silly details like giving away Toyota Corollas from Ringwood in Victoria, like Ringwood uh, Toyota. And just, it has such little silly details and just nonsense and, it's just, it's, uh, I think it's a great show. So I hope that people can have that experience when they watch it. Well, I'm looking forward to watching episode two and experiencing the cadence of more jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, it's the thing. So comedy is such a subjective thing. And yeah, like I find the reaction that people are having to this show specifically so interesting because it's not cultural specificity that's causing a divide. It is literally just something about sense of humor and I'm not sure if it's even the delivery of the humor because the delivery like feels right to me. As I said, like I can see the cadence of everything and it all should be working, but like nothing is quite connecting with me. And that's that fun thing about humor. Like it's just, you know. Well, I hope that, I hope that one day you stumble on it in a bewildered state and you can find your entry way into it. Yeah. Maybe I just need to be drinking more. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of drinking more, that's maybe something that I needed for the next show, which is the 2020 reboot of Saved by the Bell. Hey, buddy. Hiya. 
You okay? Yeah. Don't start crying. Why were you so upset earlier? I wasn't upset. Do you want to go to the max and have a dance contest about it? No. Oh no, too late. Look, I always believed that if you worked hard enough, anything was possible. But being here made me realize that's only true for kids like you. Not kids. Privileged kids. kids. One of you will be class president. And you'll put it on an application to a college that your parents already paid your way into. The deck is stacked so high in your favor that people like me never even had a chance. And it's too bad, because it would have been a great president. I actually want to make the school better. I want to go to Washington for the Spring Break Leadership Conference. I want everyone's voices to be heard. But you don't. You just want a parking space. Oh. Man, did you hear that? Yeah. The president has to spend spring break at a leadership conference? I can't do that. That's when I go on spring break. I would literally die. Look, we, we have, have to, to make, make this, this right. Sorry, I thought you were going to say better. I wasn't. Okay, so this is the fifth incarnation of Saved by the Bell, if I've done my math right. Uh, Blake, first of all, are you a Saved by the Bell person? Did you grow up with the show? Uh, I, I remember watching it vaguely early years. Um, in, in, my, in recent times, I've laughed um, mostly at Saved by the Bell through the Zach Morris joke from, by Jonah Hill in Superbad um, or <laughs> yeah. revisiting You Don't Know Me, uh, the documentary about Elizabeth Berkeley uh, starring in um, the, the great Paul Verhoeven movie Showgirls. Um, so I, I genuinely am not familiar and um, I can't think of anything worse in my life. Like, you know, if you're talking about this is the semblance of a joke, this may look and have all the hallmarks of a show, but I, this, I, you wouldn't catch me anywhere near this thing with a 10 foot pole. It's called Vasace. Okay. So the thing, sorry, that's a bit of a showgirls uh, throwback. So you get all the topical references here. It's all fair game. It's all showgirls. Uh, okay. So Saved by the Bell, this is the 2020 version. And when I heard they were rebooting Saved by the Bell, I thought, there's no way I'm ever going to check this out. But what got me <laughs> over the line was that the person who is the showrunner is Tracy Wigfield. She's a writer who was on 30 Rock. She was one of the core mm. writers on that program. She went off to run her own series called Great News, which is quite good. Uh, that show had as one of the lead, uh, lead actors in it, this guy named John Michael Higgins. Uh, John Michael Higgins, to me, is the star of the 1996 HBO TV movie, The Late Shift, which is this really amazing TV movie about the David Letterman, Jay Leno jockeying to become the host of The Tonight Show. It's a very yes. entertaining TV movie. Uh, you can find it in Australia on Foxtel and on Binge. In the US, it's on HBO Max. It's very easy to check, uh, watch these days. I think there might be a dodgy version on YouTube as well that people can also watch, <laughs> but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Anyway, he was hired to be the principal in this, the principal, uh, the principal building sort of equivalent for 2020. And I thought Tracy Wigfield, that's pretty good. She's got John Michael Higgins. Like he's a great comedic voice. Like this sounds like they're doing everything right. And then came some of the negative aspects where they hired some of the original cast to come into the show as adults teaching at the school. Zach Morris, Elizabeth uh, Berkeley well, are back. So no, no, no. So Zach Morris is kind of back, but he's only in like a couple of episodes. But the two like leading characters from the original is Mario Lopez, who played AC Slater, and the aforementioned Elizabeth <laughs> Berkeley, who played Jesse, surname forgotten already. Spano. Jesse Spano, that's right. Okay, so you got these original characters, and then the rest of the cast, Screech excluded, 
uh, do make cameo appearances through there or in like one or two episodes. And that's sort of, they're prominent. So that's all very good and well, but the focus of the new show is on the young people. And having now watched, going from the first episode, which I sampled, to feeling a bit unwell the other day and then suddenly watching all the episodes back to back, this is pretty much my findings on it. <laughs> the, the young cast are really quite good and fairly engaging. Uh, the standout of it is this um, actress named Josie Tosa, who's a transgender actress. She's playing a transgender character in the program, quite openly so. And that's incredibly unique. Like you don't really see that yeah. in teen-focused comedies like this. The thing though is the important word to focus on there is that this is a teen-focused comedy. In the same way that Saved by the Bell worked for an audience of it came out like the first incarnation was actually a show called uh, Goodbye Miss Bliss, I think is the name of the program. Had Haley Mills as the teacher of this class of the Saved by the Bell cast. Anyway, they yes. realized it wasn't quite working, so they retooled it as Saved by the Bell. Jettison, the like the great, is she late? I think she's just great. I think she's still with us. Uh, the great <laughs> Haley Mills. Uh, so she's gone, and instead you just had like this sort of teen comedy. And I only got to know it as that teen comedy, and it was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. So like from about like 1990 through like 94, 95, when I got a bit tired of it, I was regularly watching Saved by the Bell and I was core audience for it. This show works perfectly for the audience that would have been me, like that age of me back then, but it's not really for adults. And so the show has an identity problem where it's this great teen comedy, but then you've got these older actors who are kind of just put in there as though, you know, we're creating the show for gen like old millennials, Gen Xs, but it's given very little consideration to the fact that that's just not going to resonate with the younger audience. With it, like this, this idea that, oh, this could be a family comedy and it's just like 30 Rock, but about a high school. But it's not that because the jokes aren't that sophisticated because it's playing at that teen audience crowd. Yeah, um, I think you nailed it on a head of like identity crisis because it's like you're rebranding something that only people who are our age really would remember what Saved by the Bell is. Like and, right and now. Barely. In the, in, yeah, like, like as you said, barely, you barely like, remember so it. I probably remember it better than you do. But when they start trying to make sort of deep dive jokes and the most memorable moment from it, like the most memed moment <laughs> is this moment with the uh, Elizabeth Berkeley character, Jessie Spano, who was on caffeine pills and she just, you know, went a bit high off it and couldn't really deal with it. Mm -hmm. People kind of remember that, but the show sort of plays up that scene about four or five times through the 10 episode, 12 episode run of this reboot. And then like tries to play around with other deep dive jokes from the show. But unless you're a person who's been rewatching this teen comedy from you know, going back 30 years now, like you're not going to get most of these jokes. And I don't quite understand who a lot of this is for. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, if you are going to, if you're ever going to like rebrand something, you're trying to reboot it and do what it's doing again. I think like Charlie's angels, the original Charlie's angels reboot that happened that had Drew Barrymore and Cameron Diaz and Lucy Liu did something terrific, which balanced that they were taking a show that maybe people had, you know, the people who were the target audience had peripherally engaged on syndicated television as, as they were growing up, but like didn't have really have much of it. And then I had people who were kind of cursorily interested going and being attracted to the movie star quality, but it did something new with what people were interested in, like at the time. And it's also just close enough proximity to the original thing for people to care. I think now the problem is they're, they're still doing that thing with things like Saved by the Bell that they used to do, but the gap of, you know, 15 to 20 years in our contemporary times, as far as new content coming out is 
astronomical. Whereas before it, you could have a Titanic show and it would still be lingering around. It's like now every show has gone. Like it's just gone. There's only like the absolute upper echelon, huge shows that would ever have anyone have the remote interest of like, Oh, if we are going to reboot it, how's it going to work? And the proximity of those shows is so crazy, you know, like, cause um, you know, what's the biggest, probably one of the biggest teen shows kicking around is like stranger things. It feels like if they're going to reboot that, they might have to reboot it in like three years. Cause then people might've forgotten that it even existed in three years instead of 10 years as, as they've seemed to do now. Well, the trick on it, I think is just, if they just rebooted it as a teen comedy with the brand new teen cast in it, you can still have your John Michael Higgins. You still hit the comedy level as to where it's at. Mm-hmm. Cause it's kind of fun. Like it's kind of funny, but like the jokes just aren't amazing jokes. Like it's a perfectly pleasant program, but when they try layering in the older characters, that's suddenly where it becomes this weird identity crisis show. Like it's just yes. a bit much. If they just went purely as a fresh reboot in the same way that Charlie's angels movies did, where it's not making direct references to specific episodes of Yore, but rather it's, you know, just brand new adventures of the young teens at Bayside High. Like, that's perfect. But instead they don't, and the show just kind of fails for that. That said, it's kind of okay. Like, it's worth looking, and I would say it's certainly better than Goodbye, Miss Bliss. It's better than the original Saved by the Bell. It's better than Saved by the Bell, the college years. It's better than (laughs) Saved by the Bell, the new class. And if you want to consider some of the TV movie spinoffs as well, it's better than Saved by the Bell goes to Hawaii. And then I think they also went to Las Vegas. It's better than Screech's sex tape. I haven't seen Screech's sex tape, but I'd have to assume (laughs) that's true. Like the new version of the show is better than I think all those things combined and put together. That said, it's still not quite as good as it probably needs to be. Uh, I'm taking your word for it and I'm staying away from it. Yeah, yeah, your wife might like it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's wind this out. We've got one more thing, and it's a fl- well, it's a flashback to regular listeners of this podcast because we've discussed this already. But you said you want to talk about it, and I'm very much up for this because in 2020 years, it seems like it was almost as long ago as the original <laughs> version was to this reboot. And we're doing another <laughs> reboot here. This is HBO's Perry Mason. And you need me, why, Evie? Because some friend of his is in trouble, the police are involved, and you're good at your job. 3 p.m. at my office. I don't know, I got a lot going on today. The chubby thing I'm doing court, being paid to serve as a material witness on Frank Dillon case. Deep pockets on Baggerly. Opportunity for both of us. Yeah? Is he looking to buy a two-cow dairy in the middle of an airport? <laughs> you're really thinking to sell? I haven't seen you in three months, E.B. Yeah, it's been quiet out there, Boyle. I don't deny it. But this is a live one. 3 p.m. Wear your good suit. This is my good suit. And there's egg on your tie. So I want to come back and rewatch this program because I feel there is... And look, this is something that I often feel with a lot of brand new programs, particularly something which is as textured as a lot of HBO shows can be which is that you'll only really learn the language of watching the program, the rhythms, the general mood that you need to fully invest in a program a few episodes into the run. So I know when I grabbed that clip for you to play, like I was suddenly watching the show and I feel I had a greater appreciation for the show because I'd learned how to watch it properly at this point. So I want to go back and rewatch it. But the question I want to throw to you is, it's the end of the year, the hype train surrounding Perry Mason, it's well and truly passed. What got you watching it? Uh, it's one of those shows that 
uh, I, I read a great book and I would recommend it to, um, like, I, I kind of recommend it to anyone. And I'm just going to like pull the, it up this year. If this book turns out to be the Bible, it is not that kind of podcast, Blake. <laughs> no, no, no. It's definitely, I mean, look, this book could be a, a Bible of sorts. Sam, um, uh, Sam Wasson wrote a book called Big Goodbye, The Big Goodbye, Chinatown and the Last Years of Hollywood. And it was oh, like yeah, one yeah. of my I've favorite. Been, I've been meaning to one of my out. One of my favorite reads of the year, an absolutely incredible read. I'd strongly recommend it. They're looking at kind of making it into, um, they're looking at it making it into a, a film. Um, and at, at this stage, I, I believe Ben Affleck has scored the rights to that. So it's sort of like, you know, steeped in, you know, 1970s filmmaking lore. And I read it. So, and so one for, of those things- that, for those that don't know the book, this is a production of uh, Chinatown. So it's Robert Town's production of Chinatown. Yeah. So it basically covers uh, the, really the four key characters, Robert Evans, the producer at Paramount, Robert Town, the writer, um, and Jack, Jack Nicholson uh, himself, and then uh, Roman Polanski as the sort of four primary figures that are happening and about their lives and all the confluence events that brought them together. And, and then ultimately sort of where, where the films, you know, how the film was created its legacy. And then ultimately the legacy of the guys that are involved. And it's just an incredible read, fascinating, um, insightful and yeah, just really unput downable. And one of the things that Robert town talked about, especially in the creation of Chinatown was like films or film. What drew to him was like the Chinatown state of mind. And I think in 2020 films with the Chinatown state of mind continue to have a particular lure for me. So inherent vice, you know, with the golden fang as this sort of omnipresent entangled, greedy government slash, privatized organization where you know the people who are selling you the drugs are then uh you know helping make you know fleecing you for your rehab and then making you pay for your dental work or you know australia in an australian equivalent goldstone starring aaron peterson and ivan sand the jace one character you know going out to a mining town that's in bed with the government to get those contracts that will also is willing to kill indigenous people um and also then hire international prostitutes to enslave themselves as sex slaves and then just everything being entangled that it's a mess and a bramble and there may not be an answer and you're just trying to get every eke out little every bit of justice that you can and so I think those kind of texts really resonate with me. And so when I had heard about Perry Mason, heard about the people that are involved in Perry Mason, and I heard about the kind of uh, just high level, some of the, like the, what what this you know new reboot and take on the character was going to do, uh, I really thought that it really spoke to that sort of Chinatown state of mind. You know, LA in the 1930s, this entanglement of like religious communities and um, in that interwar period, capitalizing on you know post-depression era yearning for life having some kind of meaning plus just people being greedy plus old sort of movie stars you know plus just generally Matthew Reese you know as a as a pretty new fan of um as a pretty new fan of the Americans I was just like I will watch this guy do anything and so I found myself uh having you know finishing a couple of projects and going oh yeah I've got some time to watch this and um, I think I responded at the time on Twitter, something like this is, this show is so deeply my shit that I'm in. And I was, like you said, Dan, I think um, I would really like to actually watch it a second time to cause hearing that clip, appreciate the language of the show. Cause mm. like, it feels like the show has a huge pivot point in the middle and it's kind of finds what the show is going to be in the future in the sort of second half of the series. But also I really love what it was doing in the first half of the series. Um, so yeah, I, I, that, that's my kind of whole, uh, Perry Mason uh, uh, yearning to watch this show again and yearning to talk about it. 
So it fascinates me that we're talking about this straight off the back of what we just discussed with the Save by the Bell reboot. Because Perry Mason obviously is a reboot of the TV program that ran for like 20 odd years originally and then became a whole series yeah. of TV movies with Raymond Burr in it. And even then there was still Perry Mason films being made after it passed and just without the Perry Mason character. It was a bit weird. I yes. think there's about three or four of them doing that. But <laughs> the thing with uh, Perry Mason is that, and this was my complaint about the program, which was when the show started, it is about a guy who's, you know, down on his luck, it's period set. And at a certain point, they kind of just yada yada him quickly becoming a lawyer and becoming the Perry Mason character that everyone had watched the program anticipating him to be. And this was my frustration with the show, which is why do you have a show called Perry Mason where you don't have Perry Mason, the character that we are looking for, which is the idealistic lawyer, the person that you can really believe in. And when that pivot happens, they really just take this guy from being a PI to studying and cheating his way through the bar exam. And then suddenly he's a lawyer, which to me completely detracts from the point of the character, which is that he's an incredibly noble person and he's not bending the rules to be able to get where he is. He is playing to the rules. Like that's kind of what this character is all about. And the one thing that everyone knows from a Perry Mason story is that by the end of the story, he'll have someone on the... Um, on the bench? Uh, what do you call it? On that? the stand. On the stand. You've got someone on the stand. Sorry, we're recording this and it's gone past 10 o'clock and it's well and truly <laughs> past my, not bedtime, but it's suddenly past my being conscious time. <laughs> uh, but usually have someone up on the stand and he'll be talking to them and say something along the lines of, oh, but where were you when this happened? And then a person not thinking will suddenly start answering the question and reveal that they've been lying all this time and that they're really the killer and, you know, going forward. And so you expect um, two things and, from And for Perry folks Mason. who are more familiar with uh, the Perry Mason stylings, you only need to revisit, which I did on the weekend, Legally Blonde, to see Luke <laughs> Wilson cross-examine a cabana boy and ask him what his boyfriend's name was in a barrage of questions and have him confess and therefore prove that he was not having an affair with his client. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's the that's, classic Perry Mason styling. That is absolutely a nod to Perry Mason, I assure you. <laughs> And it's because it's, it was a genre convention and it was literally the same approach to storytelling. Every episode would end with that gambit. Like that's what people knew Perry Mason as. And so for this show to completely corrupt him as a lawyer and then also not provide the satisfaction of delivering that. But they do give you the third thing, which is the Perry Mason theme song, which they only play at the end of the final episode of the season. Like they yes. just, they removed so much of what we know and want from Perry Mason and they delivered a very good show in its place, but it wasn't Perry Mason. And so thinking about the Saved by the Bell reboot and then taking it to Charlie's Angels, which you also referenced, the reason why the Charlie's Angels reboot worked so well is that they gave the audience exactly what they were after that they remembered from the original show, but no more. There were no deep dives of, oh, you have to remember this one episode from season two when they went and did that. Wasn't that iconic and great? No, it's not that. It's basically... Here's the three characters and their personality traits that you kind of half remember. But then also here's the theme song. Sure, we jazzed it up a little bit because it's um, 2001. I'm trying to think when Charlie's Angels <laughs> came out. Um, yeah, around there. But you've got that. You just have to give people like just the core basics. And then once they've bought into it, off you go. And Perry Mason never came to the table with any of that. And when they did, they perverted it or just took away the... Um, excitement value of hearing that on and I'm thinking about the theme song particularly here if you're not <laughs> seeing the show open with the Perry Mason theme song or at least having the bars sort of playing in the background to give you like just that little bit of a Perry Mason like just shot 
Like, it just didn't quite feel like it was Perry Mason, the reboot. It was just Perry Mason, the unconnected HBO drama. Well, it's... There's there's one one thing I would say to you is I think in 2020 you can't do LA and you can't tell me that any kind of lawyer who was successful at that time wasn't aware of what the system is and I think that that's what I maybe enjoyed like I could never well, watch like, a show no no I, I think uh, that's fine I, th- a lo- I I think there's genre conventions now where you need to do that back when yes. Perry Mason was being made was actually you know starting out really roughly the time <laughs> the show is set in here. <laughs> Um, and Perry Mason really set the um, genre conventions going forward because it was the biggest show in the country for years and years. The books yes. sold, like, you know, they well, were there's 40 sellers. something books, wasn't there? 40 yeah, yeah. books. Am I correct at saying that? Yeah. Uh, I think there's 40, more. I think oh, sorry, it's like 80, 80 something. 80, yeah, yeah. 80 books, sorry. 82 <laughs> novels and, sh- and then four short stories. Yeah. Some of these books were selling better than the Bible. You know, these are huge selling books. Perry Mason was a massive deal. But then the 70s hit, and yes, there was the new Perry Mason TV show, but let's put that aside. But the 70s hit, and then things like Chinatown came out. Uh, there was the remake of The Big Goodbye. Um, what's the, oh, no, uh, sorry, The Long Goodbye. Yeah. But remaking The Big Goodbye. Um, so yeah. you've got that. Like These films actually set new genre conventions. And so I think for the new Perry Mason, if you've got a period setter, it needs to be set in that same time that you know from Chinatown and The Long Goodbye but also just retain some of those trademarks of the original. Like you have to make a 2020 show, but you still also need to yeah. make a Perry Mason show if you're making a Perry Mason show. Yeah. I think, I think the things that they do for me and and this is me having way less familiarity with the character is, you know, someone who is someone who's coming back from war, someone who is shell shock, someone whose sense of justice is I'd rather pull a trigger to kill you than watch you dive, you know, the gas mm. getting you. Um, um, someone who is familiar with the entanglements of the, the, the inherent corruption of the LAPD, you know, which I think is an under, you know, I mean, Sydney Lumet was doing it for years before it was popular. Um, but they're kind of like, like that, that, that kind of, uh, and doing it with the NYPD, not just the LAPD, but like those stories of that inherent corruption, you know, I love um, Curtis Hanson's adaption of Elroy's book, LA Confidential. And so, yeah, for me, this just was like a warm blanket, great actors, you know, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't as wedded to that, but then once the format of the show turned him into a lawyer and that happenstance and him just sort of, you know, the, everyone doing their own dirty tricks to get where they need to get. Once he actually, once the show concluded and we were running into what is ultimately them leading up to the second season, I'm like, Oh, they've got the rhythm now. Like this is, this will be the rhythm that we see. They'll have cases, they'll have investigators and assembling their team. And I just had a really good time watching it. So I think it's actually, I think, once you then see the second seasons and beyond, which they're actually scheduled to do, I'm excited to see them sort of get more in the Perry Mason rhythm that you're looking for, but also then look at that original season and go, no, we're telling a complete new take on the character that eventually is going to get to the guy that, you know, kind of, but he's going to be a slightly morally, morally more complex character perhaps, and also have some, a bit more baggage that we can explore in the later series, which I, I really, I really get jazzed for. Yeah, see, I'm a big believer of the having your cake and eating it too. And I think they needed to have at least a bit of a, you know, when you go to a party and they're like, I don't want a full slice of cake. I just need a sliver. Like, I just wanted the sliver. That's all I was necessarily after. <laughs> you just want the Perry Mason hit to get you through. The... And, and he wanted the sliver, but not the movie sliver, just yeah. to be clear, just because with the other references to fair game and other things in this show, we just need to make sure that we're not talking about sliver. Yeah. If next week I'm doing the podcast and it's not just talking about the erotic thrillers of the 1990s, then this podcast just isn't doing it right. (laughs) Well, look, 
I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy for you if that's the case and I'll definitely be listening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the week after I'll just specifically just like Barrow in and talk about the movie Jade, which <laughs> you know, cinema has never had a finer outing. Blake, One of the best. I don't have anything else to talk about. I believe that you're out of programs as well, which to me says we've hit the end of the podcast. hundred percent. Yeah. Look at that. Dude. It has, been, us. it has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for sitting in. Blake, you don't have any podcasts running at the moment, but you'll probably have one within the next 15 minutes. Uh, where can people <laughs> find you? Give some plugs. How do they follow you? Uh, best place to find me on Instagram and Twitter is one Blake minute. Um, if you go to my website, oneheatminute.com, you can find all the shows we're doing. Um, I am currently hosting um, a, a audio book with an after show with uh, my best friend, Maria Lewis um, from her book. It came from the deep. So we're going a chapter uh, by chapter, a free audio book and doing an after show to, you know, talk about her writing process, the inspirations and all those sorts of things. And us just sort of following along. So get onto that. Just type in, it came from the deep, wherever you get podcasts. I've just completed all the president's minutes, which concluded with the incredible Jane Alexander, the bookkeeper from the film, all the president's men helped me close that show out. I'm really proud of the series. If you guys could listen to it or check it out or you're interested, share it. Um, I'd really be appreciative. But as Dan said, right now, the next big show that is coming um, very soon is Zodiac Chronicle. So by the time you guys listen to this, in about middle to late December, the very first episode will drop and the show will run all the way through to the end of next year. Um, the guest list already is formidable and scary and uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that you guys dig it. Um, but if you want to check out, um, just type in One Heat Minute Productions wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find our complete list of all of the shows that we've done. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and the latest trailer for Zodiac Chronicle is the last thing in that feed. Indeed. And the one thing I'd say, if you're listening to any podcast, what podcast producers love is if you can leave a review, helps other people find the show. So do that on all of yes. Blake's podcasts. Once you listen to them, you don't have to lie. Like, you know, let's play things fair. <laughs> and that's the segue for me to tell people to do the exact same thing on this damn podcast you're listening to now. If you do enjoy it, leave reviews. It does help the algorithm do its algorithmy thing. It's important. You know, it keeps the podcast going. This podcast, it'll be back probably next week. Without Chris here, we're not quite sure exact we. It's the royal we. Um, me. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure exactly uh, what I'm doing, who's going to be with me, but I will have a roster of guest stars the next couple of weeks at least. Uh, this has been Always Be Watching. Find us on the web, alwaysbewatching.com. There's a daily newsletter you can sign up to there. It comes out five weekday mornings a week. Friday afternoons, there's a bonus email that tells you what TV shows have debuted during the week or returned during the week gives you trailers, it gives you a little synopsis, lets you know, hey, look, there's a new show, you might want to check this one out. That's it. Folks, this has been Always Be Watching. We'll be back next week with more stuff we've been watching. I've never known how to end this podcast. <laughs> and I just pressed the button to get the theme song happening. It didn't work. Whatever. That's a post-production thing. Just give me a sliver of that theme song before we get out of here. <laughs>